So two weeks ago, I told you that I was going to speak on the topic of wealth and possessions twice, and it'll be kind of a part one, part two sermon. And it's okay if you missed it two weeks ago. Uh, one, the sermon's recorded. It's on our website, like all the other ones. You can go listen to the whole thing if you want, but I'll give it to you in 15 seconds. In 15 seconds, here was the first sermon. Jesus wants Christians to be shrewd with their use of money, like worldly people are shrewd in their business, and... The best investment is in spiritual, eternal relationships. So my application point is give to vibrant churches because that's an eternal investment. All right, that was the basic sermon from two weeks ago. And what I said is we're going we're gonna to look at uh, the topic of wealth and possessions as uh, the first one is the, uh, the attainments of wealth. In other words, what you can do with it, what you can attain, spiritual relationships. And this one is about the attachments of wealth the attachments of wealth. And I'm going to give you on the front end the answer, the solution, the main point. It's that Jesus's goodness breaks the attachments of wealth. So keep that in the back of your mind. It's Jesus's goodness that breaks the attachment of wealth. In our marriage, Heather and I have had a number of times where the Lord has asked us to step out in faith and trust him in big things, big and expensive things, things that were going to cost us handsomely. And one of them happened 16 years ago in the year 2001, in the spring of that year, we felt like God said that we were supposed to go to England and be part of a sabbatical at a church there and study how they were doing ministry to a post-Christian culture in England. And it felt pretty strong, but you want to test these kind of things out because that's a, that's a big call. Um, so we went over there with some friends for a week and we, you know, got to see this church and we were part of prayer meetings and we were checking out what they were doing. And the whole time we're start, Heather and I are getting this inner sense of like, yes, we're supposed to do this. And then twice in that trip, the Lord raised the ante. Once was when he said that we were not to go back to our current jobs. So we were supposed to quit our jobs and go to England. And he said it three different ways before we had made the full commitment. But it was so clear that we knew we're supposed to quit our jobs and go to England. And, um, and, and as we're having that little tour for a week, I mean, it's England, right? We'd never been across the the ocean, the culture was different. Um, we were in our 20s. We toured up to Scotland. This church was doing awesome stuff. It was amazing. And it was on Good Friday of 2001. We were sitting in St. Paul's Cathedral. We had to come back down to London. We were waiting. I mean, the thing is like 600 years old. Famous people were burned at the stake outside the front door, and it's marked on the stone. Like, we were in St. Paul's Cathedral for Good Friday, noonday prayers, and we're like, yes, God has spoken. We're supposed to do this. You know, and there's some risk quitting your jobs with no prospects and, and selling stuff and begging, borrowing, whatever, to get there for three months. And we're on the plane coming home, and I'm feeling like really starting to get really excited about this. And Heather's starting to look not excited about this. And she's starting to count her month on her hands like this. And she's looking really worried. She was, she was figuring out that we're about to be parents for the first time. And God was raising the ante a little higher. I want you to go to England. I want you to quit your jobs. And you're going to be pregnant while you do this. And so... We get home and we go to Easter Sunday service under a tent in a plantation. We lived in Charleston then. And then we go to the drugstore and get a test and confirm, yep, we're going we're gonna to start a family. And so the whole thing was the Lord saying, will you trust me in this? Will you trust me? 
And what, what ended up happening is 100,000 different little things and some big things of God teaching us about his provision, his care, and his adventure. And I asked Heather last night, because as I was praying through this, she went and got her journal and started reading some of the things and reminded me of what the emotion was like, you know, the uncertainty of this. Um, And even two weeks before we were back, we had no idea of any job prospect whatsoever. And we had burned everything we possibly could come up with. We had no money and no jobs, and she's about to deliver our first baby. And so we were in that spot. Um, But on this side of that, I said, do you have any regrets? And she said, absolutely not. Our faith grew hugely in that time of trusting him. And here's the thing. The money was what was causing the insecurity. Like, how how are we going to provide? How will we feed this baby? How will we pay for the delivery, all that kind of stuff. And money provides an opportunity for growth in faith. Now, today's text is from Luke chapter 18, and it's a man, a young, wealthy man who comes to Jesus, and this interaction gives an opportunity for Jesus to do a teaching on money, on wealth. And you know, the basic thing is this, this man runs up to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to eternal, inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And then he says, well, you know the commandments. And he kind of, Jesus selectively picks a few of the Ten Commandments, the ones that I would say are easier to obey externally, like don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't lie, those kind, honor your parents. He, he doesn't mention the first one, which is, says, which is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Have no other gods before me which of course is this man's presenting issue. But Jesus sets it up and then he, and then he says, you know, I've kept all these since I was a child. Like he's, he's expecting Jesus to say, well, then you're in. You're guaranteed, right? That's what he wanted to hear. But Jesus doesn't say that. You see, because he recognizes, this ultimate physician Jesus recognizes the attachments of wealth and how wealth will attach itself to our hearts. It will set up a throne in our lives where we will worship it for a number of reasons. Think about this. Money has many of the same attributes as God. Security, pleasure, opportunity. Wealth provides those things. If you take Psalm 23 and just think about those, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Right? That speaks of God as a secure God. He provides security for us. Or pleasure. You are, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He prepares a table before me. He anoints my head, my cup overflows. There's pleasure, there's provision that God offers. Money offers it as well. There's opportunity. Um, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. God will provide an adventure and a future and an opportunity. So will money. In fact, if you take that psalm, I did this last night, if you take that psalm and just kind of adjust it slightly, you can see how money can become a God. I wrote here, I wrote, I wrote, I made my own psalm. It's called Psalm 23X. <laughs> money is my shepherd. It meets all my wants. With it, I can buy green pastures and live on the water, which should restore my soul. It leads me in paths of self-righteousness. For goodness sake, I earned it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I have good health care and my insurance card is with me. (laughs) My 401k, it comforts me. For dinner, I can set the table before me. Who cares if I have enemies? My cup overflows. 
Surely, goodness and money will follow me all the days of my life. Let's just pretend I can keep it forever. You recognize that? Money can play God, and therefore it will attach itself to your heart, and it will say, you must worship me. I will provide security. I will give you pleasure. I will meet your desires. I will give you opportunity. Money is making those promises all the time, and it is dangerous. And let's face it, we live in a nice part of the world, in a nice part of this part of the world, and the the entanglements and entrapments of wealth and possessions is crouching at our door all the time. And so this is a really, really sensitive topic. Now I want to point out that it's not just the rich that are thinking about money a lot. The poor can as well. A rich man can think about, I want more. How do I protect what I have? But a poor person can very easily fall into the idolatry as well, thinking money could solve all my problems. But Jesus points something out here that it actually is harder for wealthy people to avoid these attachments and entanglements of money. And so he says, um, it, it goes on, you know, so he says, um, one last thing you lack, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me, and then, then you'll have life. And so the man is downcast because he was very rich, this young man. He had the world in his hand, and, he had, and Jesus is saying, you got to let that go. So he walks away downcast, but then Jesus turns to his followers and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which of course is impossible. It's a ridiculous illustration of a camel through a needle's eye. And then they say, well, who can be saved? Who then? And then he says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It's possible with God. He points this out. So we don't need to, dis- to despair about it, but the rich definitely have more danger and it's gonna require an act of impossible power that only God can do. So let's look at this man for, for a minute. He had two problems. The first problem was one of self-dependence, what you could call works righteousness, or thinking he could do something to deserve. And you've heard me say this before, because this is not the first time someone asked him what to do to inherit, basically heaven. Um, you can't do anything to inherit something. You have to have a relationship with the person who is the benefactor. You don't do something to get it. You know someone, and then they gift it. But see, we want to earn our salvation. We want God to to have to give it to us because we're good people and we deserve it. And so his first problem is he thinks he can buy salvation in his own power. What must I do to inherit eternal life? His second problem that he is totally unaware of is that he has a huge, monstrous idol in his heart. And there's just this one last thing you've got to do. Just sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. You'll have treasures in heaven, and then come follow me. That's just the one last thing that you you need to do. And so Jesus is exposing this idol for this man. And he's, he's putting it out there, and he's asking simply, lovingly, you have a binary choice. Do you want wealth, or do you want me? You cannot have both. You can serve one or the other. You can't serve both. You either serve God or you serve money. One will always be the master. Do you want God or do you want money? He's putting that out there. That's Jesus' offer to this man. And Jesus, this ultimate physician, knows the human heart. He knows the attachments, the entanglements of wealth. And so he does the loving thing, which is for this individual. Now, this is not a universal teaching. Jesus is not saying to you, because of this scripture, you have to sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow Jesus. He's saying to this individual man. There are other times 
when you need to have stuff. And, and God in history has used this passage to speak to individuals and they have taken a vow of poverty. That was a direct word to them. This is not a universal teaching. Jesus knows what this man's heart needs. It's what he needs to do this. And so I, I came across a, a sermon and it's the title of a sermon that, that really stuck in my head. The title is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It was by a 19th century Scottish preacher. And one of the things he says is this, the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. So if I stand up here and I tell you, the world cannot satisfy your heart's desire, no matter how much money you make, it'll never be enough. You will always want more. The world is going to hell in a handbasket and I can get as negative about the world as I want it's still not gonna solve the problem. What you need is something else to get onto the throne in your heart and push wealth off of the throne. The expulsive power of a new affection. You need to love something more than money and then money won't be the problem. You will go towards what your new affection is. And Jesus is offering that. That's what he's teaching here. He's offering that to this man. And he says to the man, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Are you calling me good because you recognize I'm the son of God and therefore I actually am good? Or are you calling me good as sort of flattery, hoping that I will turn around and say to you, you're good. You've kept all these commandments since you were a little boy. Well done, good, good boy. That's what he wanted in return. But that question is worth reflecting on. Why do you call me good? It's worth, for you, it's worth reflecting on. Do you call him good and why? What makes Jesus good? If we start thinking about what makes him good, it will start to raise him up as a potential new affection. And then the expulsive power of that will start to take root in your life. You'll start to go, I want that more than these other things. I want the adventure of following you, Jesus, more than the wealth and the supposed security. I know that you say no one can snatch me out of your hand. That is true security. I want that. I don't wanna gain the whole world and forfeit my soul. I want you for your sake. So let's look at some of the things about his goodness and why he is, he's the kind of alternative to wealth that can actually do the impossible and heal your heart. Well, verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Here's one of the good things about Jesus. He actually is able to heal your heart. You can't fix it. There's nothing you can do on the outside to fix the heart problem. All of the world's problems are a heart problem. It's not about education. It's not about uh, government reform. It's not about uh, some distribution of the world's wealth, it, it, new laws. None of, you can't legislate this. The heart needs to be completely internally circumcised is the, the illustration that the Old Testament uses. We need a new heart. And Jesus actually is capable of doing that. That's part of what makes him so good. He can change hearts. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. He can do that for your heart. Secondly, he's loving. If you read the other accounts of this interaction from Matthew and Mark, in Mark's gospel, when the man says, I've kept all these from my youth, it says when Jesus heard this answer, he looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. And then he said, one thing you lack, go sell it all, give it away and come follow me. Jesus loved him. This was tough love, but it was the loving thing. And here's what's good about Jesus. He loves you too much to allow you to be sabotaged by an idol. He loves you that much that he will come and expose it. 
He will show you. He will stir within you a dissatisfaction and a discomfort with this thing you're pursuing. You'll have this check in your conscience in the back of your mind like, I really want that thing, but he's going, that's not good for you. He's, he'll keep doing that because he loves you. He's loving That's why he's good. That's one of the things about why he's good. He will expose your sin and do the tough love thing. And he'll let you wander away like this man. I don't know what happened to the man. I hope a year later he came back and he repented and he did sell his stuff and he became a a disciple. I don't know. But Jesus loves us enough to say the hard word and let us just wrestle with that until we're willing to give it up. He won't take it by force. That's just his goodness. And he's generous. He says in one of his teachings, he says, you fathers, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who love him? If you, I mean, the, the, the most wicked father still at times will give good gifts to his children. And God is not that. He's not wicked. He's good. And so he gives good things. He is generous. I'm not trying to tell you that you should always have to give stuff away. You should, you know, never want things. You can ask him for stuff, and he will delight to give it. He's generous. Now, you can ask him for things that will hurt you, and because he loves you, he won't give them. But oftentimes, he'll give it not because you're going to use it for ministry, not because it has some other end, just because you want it and he loves you. How often do you as a parent, if you're a parent in here, how often do you like to give good things to your kids? Not so they're going to use it for their education. Not so they're going to, you know, just because they want it. It feels so good as a father to give something to my children that they want. God is like that, even more so. So let me go back to our time in England. We, when we were there, we had, I mean, I had my pregnant wife. We had a one bedroom in this house that we were renting and sharing with the other people. We had a guitar and two suitcases and nothing else. Nothing else. And a very uh, weak checking account that was getting depleted quickly. And we were walking every day up this big hill to the church for morning and evening prayer and midday prayer. And we, everywhere we went, we had to either take the bus or get a cab or we were always walking everywhere. And I started to be irritated with that. And I just said, Lord, I miss my bicycle. I want a bicycle. And, you know, you got to be specific when you pray. Because he gave me a bicycle, and it happened within that very next week. I, it might have been the very next day, but it was in the next couple of days. And we were walking up to the church, and somebody had put outside at their trash a bicycle. It was leaning up against the garbage cans. And I thought, that's a perfectly good bike. Why is it leaning up on that garbage can? And I went up and knocked on the door, and I said, are you throwing that bicycle away? And they said, yeah. And I said, can I have it? And they said, of course, take it. Totally worked. Everything was good on it. Except that it was an adult woman's bicycle. And on the paint on the tube, it said, Spirit Princess. (laughs) I didn't care. I didn't know a single person in Sheffield, England. I rode that bicycle for three months all over the place. And, and you know, I just wanted a bicycle. I didn't need it. I just wanted one. I wanted to go and explore. There was, there was this beautiful wilderness area behind our apartment area. It had a, a bike path that went through the woods, and there was like cool rock climbing and stuff back there. It was real hilly, and it was beautiful, green. Everything was green. I wanted to ride a bike, and I just said, God, I want a bicycle, and he went, okay, and gave me one. He's generous. He's good. He's not asking you to do something that's not good for you, but he loves you so much, he won't let wealth take your heart, and he's offering you himself. He's good. 
And love for this kind of God will expel the covetousness and the, the, the attachments of wealth. And you'll be free to use it. Now, what do we do with this? Well, one, decide who you want to be your master. Make it, I mean, make the mental decision. I want to worship the Lord, not money. Decide that. Sit down and actually say it. Say it out loud. Do that in your prayer time. Sort that through. And then I'm not saying vow of poverty, but I, I am saying what Psalm 62.10 says. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. So because he's generous and he likes to provide, there's a very good chance that you will come across things, stuff, affluence, wealth. Windfalls will come your way. If that happens, he's warning you, don't set your heart on them. Now, the way to do that is to start building habits in your life. And if you're a young person in here, hear me on this. This was a young, rich ruler. It was someone who had early been very successful and had a lot of wealth. And we all have to learn to break the attachments of wealth in our lives. So early on, you can learn this. And I'm talking in your school days, grade school, teen years, start to learn the habit of kingdom generosity. Start to learn these things by giving away, by being generous of hand, just being generous with things towards God and towards others. You can start to break the power of money in your life that way. And you can set yourself up for a lifetime of kingdom generosity. And I don't know if it works as linear as I want it to. The engineer in me wants this to be the case. But I, I think there could be an account, an actual number. I know there's a number. God has that number of hairs on our head counted. He knows exactly what you've given him to the penny. I've never regretted giving him anything. I will regret not having given him more, I'm pretty sure. That day is coming. And so I want to learn these habits of being generous towards God with God's stuff. And the thing is, if you're faithful with a little, he'll give you more. Money is a test. It provides an opportunity. He wants us to be good at managing his stuff. So practice generosity with God. When you give something away, it breaks the power of the attachment. So a lot of times when I will, I'll say in church, when we're doing the offering, I will say, it's at this time in the service that we bring our tithes and offerings forward. This is a way that we can declare that God is God and money is not. It's also a way that we invest in the missions and ministry of the church. I will say that because the act of writing the check or filling out the auto deposit or putting the money in the plate, when you do it and let go, you actually start to get free. I mean, Jesus said it, it's more blessed to give than to receive. The blessing is the attachment gets broken. And so then you're able to enjoy his good things without them controlling you. So you have to learn that habit. Now, some of you, when I said, do you want to choose money or the Lord? You went, the Lord. But then when you look at your lifestyle, you can't. You actually have become enslaved because the entanglements have built up. Your realtor, as good as they might have been, didn't have your best interest in mind, but had the commission in mind and talked to you to buy up. So you bought more house than you can afford. Your payment's too big. The car dealer, man, I just need the new car instead of the used one. And you got tempted and things started, your lifestyle started to swell. You can't get into these problems quickly and you can't get out of them quickly either. So it's going to take intentionality. And what, what the church is going to do um, is help you with that in January. We're going to offer the Crown Financial Ministries course called Managing Gun Money God's Way. It's seven weeks. It's very, it's a simple and helpful class to get God's perspective on wealth. And then it will help you put in place a system to get your lifestyle where you actually want it so that you can be kingdom generous. That'll be helpful. You'll hear more about that coming. But that, one of the things that you do in that class is you fill out a quit claim deed. 
So you, on a deed, you write out your stuff. You know, my wristwatch, my um, wallet, my keys, my home, my children. You write things out that have the temptation to get your heart, and then you sign them over to God on this, like, form, like a legal form. You sign it over. Quit claim deed. I am giving you the property deed to these things, Lord. And then what he says is, okay, now I want you to manage them for me, but they're mine. That's a helpful tool for us to get our perspective right. And then there are some things in that class that will help us um, learn to make a budget and learn to live by it and, and make intentional decisions and communicate in the household about that. So that's coming in January. And now the last thing that I want to say as an application point is the pledge. This is a pledge Sunday, and this is a spiritual discipline we do every year to sit down in the Lord's presence and say, God, I would like to invest in your kingdom, and here's what the amount is, and write it on a piece of one of those pledge cards and bring it. And today, we've got baskets at the front of the rows. If you forgot your pledge card, there are some on the baptismal font and some at the information table, but I don't really care when you turn it in but I do think you should turn it in. I don't have your name on it. I don't, I, don't, I don't need to know what you're pledging to God, but you need to know what you're pledging to God and you need to actually pledge it to God. It's another way of breaking the, the attachments of wealth. There's the attainments of wealth and the attachment of wealth. And the way that the attachment gets broken is by the goodness of Jesus. It pushes that off of the throne of your heart. So let's pray. Lord, this is a difficult topic. I thank you for your goodness I pray for each one of us that we would, be call, we would have called to mind aspects of your goodness, that we would see you, that we would recognize that, Lord, if we have you, we have everything. Give us the freedom of that, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.